Hey, this is Mike Patterson, your host for Embrace Growth. This is a podcast dedicated to personal growth and empowered choices. Helping to create change and transformation in your life and the world. This week on the show, I have a conversation with Brian Kelly from Chicago, Illinois. Brian and I have known each other for a few years through the Mankind Project, and we get to talking about creativity and his work as a social worker. But what comes out of the conversation is amazing, especially when we start talking about mentors and how they show up in the world. Stick around. Hey, Brian, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the show. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Everybody, today I'm speaking with Brian Kelly from Chicago, Illinois. I'm going to have Brian go ahead and introduce himself. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me here. My name is Brian Kelly. I uh, reside in Chicago, Illinois, in the farther farthest northern neighborhood of the city called Rogers Park butts up against Evanston. And uh, yeah, I've been up here for about seven or eight years with my husband and my dog. And I'm an associate professor at the School of Social Work at Loyola University Chicago. Uh, I'm also a musician and I run a label and I'm a DJ and I have a lot of interest in music and the arts. And uh, I'm also a certified co-leader in the Mankind Project for the New Warrior Training Adventure. Uh, And Mike, that's how I've met you. Absolutely. This is great because there's so many things I don't know about you, Brian. So I'm glad to have you here and get to know you better. Yeah, me too. Um, Where'd you grow up? So I grew up in Chicago. I grew up right outside the city in a Northwest suburb called Des Plaines. And for people that aren't from the city, I always say it's the suburb that's just due north of O'Hare, which is our big airport hub in the city. So I grew up with like basically O'Hare is my backyard. <laughs> yeah. And and I went to, uh, to Palatine High School, so I know Des Plaines really well. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Cool, cool. Yeah. So I lived there until I was about uh, 19. And then I moved to the city and I've pretty much been in Chicago most of that time for about the last 25, 30 years. I spent a couple of years down in Florida getting an associate's degree in audio engineering. And then I also spent a couple of years uh, up in McHenry County in my mid-20s doing a mid, mid-life evaluation and getting things in order, if you will. Yeah. All right on. And everybody yeah. in McHenry County is, is North. It's goes right up there by Wisconsin. And so, yep. Yep, yep, yep. Um, all right. So now that everybody has the geography down and, and what's going on, when I was talking to Brian before to get him on the show, he says, Hey, what about we, how about we talk about creativity? And I was like, okay, well, I, I guess we could tie that into personal growth, but I'm curious what you got, Brian, what, and I'm just now learning all of this musical background of you because I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I think from my earliest memories of, of myself, and my, my interactions with my family and friends, I always kind of had two primary interests. Like one was being creative and the other was trying to be helpful. 
I think from jump, I always knew I wanted to do something with like theater or music. I never really felt like a visual artist. That just wasn't my thing. I've never been good at drawing or painting. I mean, I'm good enough, but I'm not. <laughs> no one is giving me a, a, a BFA or an MFA in visual arts or sculpting or any of that. And uh, I also remember from a really young age, always wanting to kind of like help, you know? I, I'm a middle kid, so I definitely have that kind of energy of like wanting to kind of be in the mix and always kind of wanted to be assistance and help people out. Earliest kind of creative endeavors that I have a memory of are like sitting down with my blocks and like my Playmobil guys and like putting on my Kiss records and like building these massive stages with these blocks and these Playmobil guys. And I had an older brother and as I grew older, I got more into progressive rock, Rush and Yes, and Genesis, and he was into all that stuff. And I just went deep on it and I got a drum kit for my parents and I got a guitar and I wasn't disciplined enough to like be quote good unquote, but I, I loved being around it. Uh, but I didn't get that immediate gratification uh from it because i wasn't disciplined enough at that age to kind of put in the time to become a, a good musician and then like in junior high i found out about like theater my parents kind of signed me up for this community theater program and that was like oh like this is a bit more immediate like i come to rehearsal i work with the director i work with the other kids in the cast and like we can, we can do this performance and it's time limited. We rehearse for three months, have six performances, bam, done, on to the next one. And so when I got to high school, um, I joined band and I also started doing theater in high school too. And probably around 15 or 16, like adolescent angst, like really set in for me big time. And lo and behold, there was this amazing uh, underground uh, punk rock hardcore scene in the Northwest suburbs of Chicago. And, you know, there was uh, a club um, out at North Avenue, I think in Man Mannheim, it was called McGregor's. Uh, and it was you, underage. So you could go if you were underage. I only went there a couple of times, but more importantly, there were all these basement shows throughout the burps and parents would let their kids you know, have their bands play and you could get like a hundred people packed into a basement and it was just raw. It was bananas and um, in the best possible way um, because the other side to all of this is that, you know, I grew up in a pretty chaotic environment. It was, it was pretty wild. There was quite a bit going on. And what I learned was that uh, I wasn't super strong academically, but I was pretty bright but I wasn't finding any stability through school and school was actually more dysregulating for me because I, I had a hard time sitting still. Like, you know, I probably could have been diagnosed with several things, but that just wasn't the way my family rolled back then. So theater and music like helped regulate me. Like it gave me a place to put all that energy that I was feeling, whether it be anger or joy or sadness or shame, whatever it was. And it became an outlet. So by like 18 or 19, I had pretty much like walked away from theater and I had found like this underground scene of, of music going on. And I found out that if I just got a microphone and screamed, I could front a band <laughs> and it was fantastic. It was such a good outlet for me. And 
I'm going to jump ahead just briefly mm-hmm. and say, I know that there are some um, risks involved in all of that, those scenes. And, you know, I picked up smoking cigarettes and I probably started, you know, smoking weed too young, or, you know, I might've had a couple of drinks and in the way I frame creativity and access to these scenes, I never want to negate the risks that are involved, but I also don't want to throw everything out and say it's all risks because the protective factors and the benefits that I got from being in that scene, quite frankly, I'm not quite, I'm not sure I would still be here if it wasn't for those scenes at that time back in the day. Wait, so let's, let's unpack that a little bit. So say a little bit more about that. So as a professor, I I do research on the use of the arts and social work and kind of related fields. And one of the things I'm really interested in is how the arts can give young people in particular who are in precarious situations like unstably housed or living on the streets, it can give them avenues to kind of retell their stories, to share their experiences and to build intrapersonal and interpersonal skills. And some of the things that I hear about are, well, yeah, some of the hip hop and trap music that the young people are engaging in has dangerous messages and all they're doing down in that studio is smoking weed and, you know, they're drinking. And I always say yes. And they're also dealing with their trauma. They're working through their issues. They're building community they're gaining technical and interpersonal skills. And so for me, it's always important, I think, to not basically say like anything is inherently just risky in and of itself. I believe that people do things because there's a benefit to them. It's some kind of coping mechanism, right? So does that answer your question and give you a little more context? Absolutely. And you know, so I'm taking notes, which I usually do when I'm interviewing somebody, but right now it's so funny how much you're bringing me back since we grew up in basically the same area. Yeah. Yet I was always a hippie kid. So I was listening to, you know, classic rock and stuff. Both my brothers, especially my younger brother was in that hardcore scene. Yeah. And he played drums and the, the thirsty whale. And um, yeah, there, there's just all of these different kind of clubs where underage kids could go. And like you said, packing people into the basement parties and that whole scene. And I was involved in the whole scene, even though I wasn't really into the music, it was a way for me to, I don't know, belong. Mm -hmm. But now I hear what you're really saying. And as a kid, I, I wasn't thinking about things in the way that we think about them as adults in the mental health world. I was thinking about belonging. I was thinking about, is this cool? Where do I fit? But also, yeah, the kids that were screaming like yourself into the microphone that you mentioned regulation. Oh, you know, this is blowing my mind in the sense that when I'm teaching about emotional regulation and stuff today, kids don't need to know why they're doing what they're doing. They're doing it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. So if they're regulating their emotions by screaming and jumping up and down or diving into a mosh pit, whatever, that is in a sense healthier than numbing with drugs and alcohol and 
like you said, there's those inherent risks that go with that too. It's just like the skate park, right? The skate park is a, a perfect example of kids being athletic and, and being creative or hanging out just to get into trouble. So, yeah. And so like, just for, for you and me, like I always want, like all, a lot of guys I hung out with skated and I was always kind of wanted to get into it, but when I eventually picked up guitar and figured out like, Oh, like I don't have to be like a maestro or proficient to make noise with this thing. I found a way to do it myself. I was always worried about breaking my fingers. So I never got on a board or got that serious about it because I didn't want to like break anything in my hands. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I was around that scene. So, yeah. But it's, it's interesting that you didn't want to skate because at, at a, some sort of adolescent level, breaking my hand now would kick me out of the club. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yes. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So just to kind of continue this narrative a little bit, when I finally got out of high school, um, I, I had some other stuff kind of going on in my life. I tried to go to college and I lasted about six weeks, my first run and came home. I just, I just wasn't ready. I wasn't one of those kids who was ready to kind of like, even though my parents really couldn't keep me home <laughs> when I was home in high school, being out on my own and being sent to a state university where I was one of, you know, 4,000 kids in the incoming class. I just, I got out of there pretty quick and I came back home and uh, I got in a new band and we were a little bit more on the psychedelic tip kind of like space rocky informed by pink floyd and around that time as well um the kind of rave scene landed in chicago from the uk so this would have been about 92 93 that opened up a whole other realm of adventure and creativity with some downsides too, for sure. For me personally, I won't speak about anybody else, but for myself, you know, it involved, you know, more partying and and some excess. And at the same time, it wasn't all bad. And, and a lot of times when we talk about um, these scenes, music scenes, young people and engaging and all of this, it becomes an either or as opposed to a both and for me. And what I mean by the either or is that if a young person engages in a risky behavior, the whole thing becomes entirely problematic. And what I questions I like to ask are, and I'm sure these are of interest to you too, why are they engaging in the risky behavior? It's not necessarily that the scene's bad and the music's bad and all of these things that are happening are bad. It's more about what's driving them to engage in that risky behavior in this kind of amazing environment. For myself, I know why I was engaging in some of those more risky behaviors was, as I had indicated before, kind of growing up in a chaotic environment wanting to be out of that environment as much as possible. You know, I developed not the healthiest coping skills. Over time, when I got into my mid-20s, I was like, well, this isn't really going to end very well if I keep doing these things. You know, I had a band that was doing pretty well, but we were somewhat held back by our inability to kind of overcome some of our own demons. I kind of knew like, oh, well, I could do something else. Like, I could go back to school. And so for me, I kind of got out of the city, 
got my act together, got some help for sure too. And uh, that's when I moved out to McHenry County and I, I went back to school. This is where I kind of remembered like, oh, helping people. That's another thing that I ultimately kind of really wanted to do with my life. You know, at 25, I knew or I felt I was too old for, you know, medical school. I had thought in the back of my head as I was a kid, like someday it'd be cool to be a doctor. I think a lot of kids think that. I did. I looked at my life trajectory and said, oh, I'd be working by the time I'm 42, like pass. But lo and behold, I decided to get a PhD and started working at 38 <laughs> anyways. So getting ahead of myself. I went back to school and I studied human services at the community college level. And I found some just really great mentors who were willing to sit down with me and kind of take the time to kind of coach me on my career path. I initially thought I would be a therapist or be like a psychologist. And a couple of my professors at the community college level sat me down and said, no, you're, you're a social worker. And I said, well, how do you, how do you know? Like what, and they're like, you don't just talk about people, you talk about systems. And you're really interested in helping folks kind of manage within their environment. And that's a more of a social work thing. And so I'm gonna fast forward through quite a bit till I get my master's in social work. And I kind of ultimately knew I really wanted to teach. And so I decided to go back and get a PhD in social work. One of the gigs that I had while I was a master's uh, student and post-masters was I was doing um, harm reduction groups for young people who were experiencing homelessness in the Bronzeville neighborhood in Chicago. So Bronzeville is on the Southeast side of the city. And um, for listeners that might not be familiar, Harm reduction is approach to substance use treatment where rather than promoting abstinence, we're working with folks to reduce harm around their usage. And so we really try and work with folks to reduce the harm in any way possible. And so while the end goal ultimately might be abstinence, we never withhold services, treatment, support, affirmation, any of that until they reach abstinence, we're always supporting and kind of coaching them the whole way through and anything they're doing. Can you say a little bit more about that process? Because that's fascinating to me in the sense that, yes, of course, the ultimate goal is stop the substance abuse, but what's the technique or how does that look? Yeah, sure. So a little bit of background, I became familiar with harm reduction. Uh, a little bit through education, but primarily through practice. So I worked for a couple different agencies in Chicago uh, as a social worker where we were providing housing uh, and housing vouchers to individuals. And they promoted two different um, approaches to working with individuals. One was housing first. And so housing first really means that rather than having folks uh, accomplish a bunch of tasks before they're able to get housed. We get them housed first, and then we offer all the other services. And then relatedly is the concept of harm reduction. For many folks, what was uh, the holdout for them for getting housing was getting sober. 
And what we found was that people were literally dying on the streets because they couldn't stop using long enough to get into an apartment. So that's where I kind of learned about harm reduction. And so I was working with young people experiencing homelessness. And a lot of these young people, uh, you know, they were smoking weed and drinking. And, you know, here's the real deal. If I was sleeping on a park bench at 19 in the city of Chicago in February, I'd probably be self-medicating as well. And so to go in there as a white man in my early to mid 30s, speaking predominantly to black youth about their substance use for me to walk in there and be like, Hey, you got to stop using. I mean, I might as well have six heads at that point. Like it, right. what's the point? So what it looks like is talking to them about their use, getting a sense of how they feel about it. If they're okay with it, then talking to them about any legal risks any health risks, and then beginning to identify areas where they might want to think a little bit differently. So for example, you know, if a young person has had a couple interactions with law enforcement about smoking in public, is there a way you can do it more privately so you're not putting yourself at risk? Or if a young person is sharing paraphernalia and has picked up some sort of virus in some way, um, is there a way that you can not share to kind of reduce your risk to health stuff? So that, that's kind of what it looks like. And we would set up goals and then just check in around those goals. Right on. Okay, cool. Yeah. And building trust along the way. So hundred cool. percent. And the, the number one way to not build trust is to walk in and say, stop doing that. <laughs> it's just not going to build trust. That's why I was really curious about the process. So um, yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. All right. So then now fast forward again, you got yep. your, your PhD and- and how, how do you wind up tying creativity into this whole thing then? Okay. So I have to back up a little bit. All right. Sure. So I'm presented with this idea that I have to do a dissertation, right? Which is part of getting a PhD. And I had been building up to this idea of wanting to look at how social workers have used creativity, like art and music and different things throughout the years. And so the agency that I had been doing the harm reduction groups with, there was this one day uh, I went in there and I was known as like the drug guy. So I'd walk in and everybody would just like run. They'd be like, you know, I don't want to be in this guy's group. <laughs> they would just run. And so I'm standing there and I'm like, okay, here we go. I got to And I hear this like this thumping coming from the basement. And I'm like, what? What's going on? Like, and I'm like, drumming up you know folks to come to group and whatever and i still hearing this thumping and like two of the young folks who are tagged as for sure supposed to be in my group that day i can't find them and so he's like oh they're in the basement working on beats and i'm like oh so i go down there and there's these two young guys and one's hunched over this like you know like rolling mid-2000s hard drive recorder like working on some beats and this other young person is in the corner with like a you know a, a pretty decent mic with like a made-up popper stopper which is like usually a piece of nylon and the nylon protects the mic diaphragm from hard consonants and they're like going at it and i had this moment where i'm like i can tell them to come upstairs and come to the group or i can just kind of stand here and see what happens and I'm grateful I just stood there to see what happened because it opened up a door for me to propose a study where I would basically 
spend a year at this agency, which in the time between I saw that moment and I did my dissertation had actually built a freestanding music studio within their agency. So I spent a year in there doing this work. And so the thing I want to tie back to with that is that I brought a particular lens to this study because I knew what music had done for me. There had been folks in my life, in my peer group, mentors in my community, teachers, friends, parents that sat down with me and other folks who wanted to be in theater and music and said, I see a gift and a talent in you and I want to foster that. And so for me coming into the study, I didn't see myself so much as a mentor, but I saw myself as an advocate somebody within a position who was going to be in an academic position someday that could basically say, these services are not only useful for young people, but they're vital. And I really mean that in the literal sense of they are life-saving. They can really give people life. And so, you know, I did this study and I finished it and I got a, I got a job and I've pretty much like been doing research around kind of creative approaches to working with vulnerable individuals and folks from marginalized populations for like almost the past decade. Um, and I feel really blessed and super grateful because it's mission work for me. It's, it's my passion. Like I, I'm in my studio right now. Like I you can't see much, but it's all behind me, but you know, I'm, I'm in my office slash studio. And so I found this really amazing kind of intersection where I can teach and do research and I can talk about the things that I'm passionate about and I can also be creative. And a line of work that I've been kind of developing in the last two years in particular uh, are a couple of think pieces for folks in the field of social work and perhaps affiliated fields to be thinking about not disassociating ourselves from our complete identity. And so what I specifically mean by that is that I know a lot of social workers who are practitioners and academics who choose to not integrate the artist part of themselves into their work. And I want folks to embrace that and to become like social worker artists and artist social workers so that we can be more creative in our approaches. Ooh. Earlier, you and I, before we began recording, we're kind of talking about how when folks experience trauma, it can kind of blunt their creativity. Mm -hmm. It can make them not see different avenues. And I would actually counter and say survival through trauma requires creativity. I think that people can be incredibly creative in the ways that they learn how to cope, strategize, navigate really difficult situations throughout their lives. And so I want to kind of build on that and harness that and support that for people who are both like on the practitioner end and those who are on more of the receiving end. So let me pause and see if you have any reactions or anything. Oh man, I got a million reactions, but when you when you talk about how vital it was and so that's that's where my brain just started going off in that direction is i want to hear a story or what you know from not only that time but now fast forward to where you are is how vital is it 
for the world to create these outlets for marginalized youth to have a place to go be creative and how that could actually not only save their lives, but allow them to thrive. Great. So uh, it would have been the fall of 93 was the year that I um, did my six weeks of college for the first time. Leading up going to school, my high school band disbanded. My high school punk rock band had kind of disbanded. I went down to Illinois State University. And at the time, um, I was still kind of struggling with coming out and figuring out who I was. You know, I had some pretty negative experiences at, at the university I went to. And so I had moved home. And I was afraid to tell my parents that I had dropped out. And so I lived in a good friend's garage for about a week. I had just kind of gone through some of my own pretty significant trauma, came out of a very chaotic family environment, was struggling with coming out and understanding who I was as a, as a young adult. At the time, I had lost my band, my primary creative outlet. So it was a pretty low point. And that fall also, I got in a pretty intense car wreck. I had fractured a vertebra in my neck. And so that fall was really, really dark for me. The friend's garage that I was staying in, his father uh, had a music studio in his basement. And he knew that I uh, really was struggling with not having a band and not having a creative outlet. And uh, I remember sitting with his dad one day and kind of just playing some songs that I had kind of kicking around my head. He said, those are, you know, those are really good. We should work on those. And I was like, what? Like, you want to work on these? Like, you know, he had a, his own band and he had his own job and he had a lot going on. He's like, yeah, we should definitely, you know, work on these. And to be clear, this is a basement studio in displays. This is like, you know, pretty working class, blue collar. Like, you know, he had just kind of cobbled this studio together. But for me at the time, it was amazing. Me. Uh, my friend who was a drummer and his dad who was a bass player, guitar player, and engineer, we started playing and recording these songs. That spring, spring of 94, I, I was asked to be in a new band. I believe the bridge that um, this mentor provided for me. I don't know what would have happened to me through that fall and winter and spring. Like, I really don't know where I would have wound up if I hadn't had that older person who had a skill set, who saw a passion in me around a similar skill set and said, let's work on this for you. Let's, let's get you down here and let's work on this. What I mean by vital is that like, I literally feel like it provided me a lifeline at probably the dark, one of the darkest moments of my childhood and my adolescence for sure. That is um, just one of dozens of stories that I can think of, of where music has really been a lifeline for me. And to be clear, you know, things got not so much better for me from like, like early to mid twenties, 
but music was always still the thing that provided me with this vital lifeline to like, even when things looked really particularly dark, it was like, no, I've still got a band. I've still got music. I still want to kind of keep pursuing this thing. And so today I feel like I have a responsibility to be an advocate for that. Yeah. So let me flip it on you then, Brian, and say, how have you been that lifeline for youth that you've seen struggling or challenged with things that you were able to mentor or keep them on a path plugged into their creative outlet? Sure. So the study I did uh, for my dissertation it was really tricky because I spent so much time at this agency and it was very clear to me that the young people I was spending time with um, saw me um, not just as a researcher, um, that I was a part of the studio at this point. I was fully integrated into it. And I unfortunately would have to set boundaries for them around what I could do and could not do for them. However, what I didn't really have to draw boundaries around was training them up on what I knew about music and the studio. Mm. And so in, in this role where I'm a researcher, what I have found I've been able to do is not just be this objective fly on the wall kind of observer survey giver where I'm just collecting data. The type of work I can do is I actually can get involved and help them produce things and help them kind of, oh, that snare doesn't sound right. Like, what about this? Or, hey, that baseline, have you thought about EQing it this way or doing things a little differently? Um, but the, the most telling story for me, for sure, in that project was, so I spent about six months observing the young people in the studio and interviewing them. And then after that, what I did was I was like, you know what, this is just going to be this written document. That's just going to basically like sit on a shelf and you know, whatever. I want to do something more dynamic. So I, I worked with a group of four young people to create an audio documentary that basically was an audio based representation of the work that we had done in the studio. So we spent three or four months producing this thing. What was so moving to me was at the end of it, they all kind of looked around and said, man, we actually finished something in here. And I was like, wait, what do you, what do you mean? And they're like, well, we kick it in here all the time, but it's hard for us to finish things because there's so many distractions. And so what became clear to me was that like, so there's, it, it, there's something about having a mentor presence in the space that allows people to complete something. And so for me, I was like, oh, this is the next line of work. It's not just about giving young people access to services. It's actually about staying in the room with them and helping them get this work done. It was a pretty important moment for me, both as, an, as like a human being, but also as a social worker and uh, aspiring scholar. You know, as I'm listening to this story, which is very inspiring, by the way. What's emerging for me is this idea of the mentor. And I know that if it wasn't for mentors in my life, and before I had formal mentor relationships like I do today, I didn't even call them that. I didn't think of them as mentors. But 
what I'm realizing now, rewinding my life, is if it wasn't for the mentors, I wouldn't be where I'm at. And so that's what I'm seeing emerge out of this conversation. 100%. I think it's about that, that dynamic I was talking about earlier where I, I want to encourage helping professionals to embrace their creativity. Those are the type of mentors that I think are really vital. Because if a helping professional just stays in that kind of professional role, it's not that they can't embrace their humanity, but I think it's harder for others to see that because they've got that kind of zipped up professional identity. But if they open up and kind of share a little bit more about their creativity and who they are as a human being, someone might find them a little more accessible and there can be that kind of spark of, oh, well, you're a physician and you paint. I thought I couldn't do that. Or you're a nurse and you're a comedian. That's crazy. I never knew that that was a possibility, right? And then we see all these hybridizations of helping professions and creativity. Yeah. I mean, not only does it make us more authentic, more human, but man, like think of the numbers of people that have these dual lives and how they could embrace more authentic parts of themselves, but humanity would benefit greatly to allow the bandwidth because yeah, it's like, okay, I'm wearing a suit and tie to work and then, you know, get home from the office and and mess up my hair and put on this t-shirt and I'm going out and play in some, you know, shitty little smoky bar with my friends. (laughs) And, and there's, there's no integration between the two. In fact, there's even the fear that maybe one of my colleagues will walk in and see me in the band. And so then building on that concept, Mike, it's how much dissonance does that create in me as a human being? Yeah. Where and and so it it I'm so grateful that I chose, I don't mean to be like patting myself on the back, but oh, I just want to be authentic. Like, I know. Man, I know. I'm super grateful that I I chose to kind of carve out this path and be like, no, I don't just want to study mental health and I don't want to study behavior modification. And I don't, you know, I really want to look at how can we use creative approaches in social work because it allowed me to not feel that dissonance in my life because I had felt dissonance for so long. I thought I had to choose an either or, right? But when I found the path for both and, well, I, I had to carve the path, <laughs> but once I learned I could do that, it was like, oh, this is, this is good. And there's some axiom about this. I know I can't think of the language, but like, lo and behold, you know, I start doing this work and I meet other people who are doing it as well around the country and around the globe. And so there are a group of us within the social work kind of academia that are really invested in promoting this idea of embracing our creativity as a healthy profession, right? In order to be more authentic, a hundred percent. Right on. All right. So at this point, how do you want to recap what we've been talking about here? I think it's really about encouraging folks to one, Find what they're passionate about in terms of their creativity and let go of any idea that creativity has to equal genius or that creativity has to equal some sort of competence or skill. 
Find what it is that you're creative with and lean into it. And as opposed to thinking that one has to separate themselves when they walk into a professional environment or any environment, lean into the idea of what would it be like to lean into my creativity here? I've done it in so many different spaces and it's not always comfortable, but I've always been really happy with the results at the end of it where I've decided to embrace that. The other flip side of it is to be conscious and aware of where mentorship lies within this path and being open to that mentorship and honoring it when it occurs and also being open to the idea of mentoring others. Even within that construct, be open to creativity about how that can happen. Mentorship and mentoring might not look the way that you think it ought to look. I use ought in quotes. So it's really about being creative around all of that. I just want to share too briefly the individual I spoke about earlier that was a mentor to me and provided me with that bridge in that darker time in my life. He passed last week and I actually had a chance to go to his memorial on Sunday. All around the room were all these pictures of him with his family and all of his instruments. And um, it was just so beautiful to me to see this full life of family and music and love. I think in a lot of ways, he wasn't just a mentor for me around how to access music and studio. He was also a mentor for me of how to live a creative life and not try and kind of hide the different parts of himself. So sorry that got into the recap. But no, 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 no apologies, man. That's beautiful. And um, sorry to hear that he passed and what a legacy. There were like about 18 guys about my age there, all of whom he had had touched in some way or another. And we were all part of the same clique kind of growing up. We've all gone different ways. But all of us there, there was that knowing, you know, that we were we were at an event for a reason because we loved this guy and he took an eye and out for us. So it was just, it was, it was a sweet moment to have that kind of exchange. How can the listener get a hold of you and what services can you provide? Sure. So... Um, I have a faculty page. If folks were to search out Loyola University Chicago School of Social Work, and if they were to go to the faculty page, they would find my faculty profile where they can find my um, my resume with all of my publications. Uh, they could find all of my presentations and all my writings. And I've written quite a bit about the use of the arts and music and social work. So, um, and if anybody had any questions, they could reach me at my email, which is bkelly6 at luc.edu. And then for my creative stuff, I have a, a record label that I run. It's called Harlem and Irving. And so you can find my more creative works at harlemandirving.com. And that'll link you to our Bandcamp site. 
our SoundCloud page, uh, and all those kinds of things. And um, yeah, those are pretty much the services that I have to offer there at this point. That's awesome. Thanks, Brian. And thanks so much for being here. I, I got to know you a, a whole lot better than I did before. And um, yeah, I just feel really inspired for being here, listening to you for the last hour. So thanks again for being here. Thank you for having me, Mike. I, I really appreciated sharing these stories with you and uh, I hope that your listeners enjoy them as well. Thanks everybody for listening to another episode of Embrace Growth. Please subscribe, that way you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes. And if you would leave us a five-star review, it helps other people find the show. Some of the underscore of today's episode was music from Harlem and Irving. You can go to harlemandirving.com and I'll also have that in the show notes. Today's episode was brought to you by Leader Champions. Leader Champions offers online and in-person coaching, mentoring, trainings for personal growth work and leadership. Check it all out, leaderchampions.com. New episodes of Embrace Growth appear on Mondays. That way you can start off your week in a good way. So until next Monday, please embrace your own personal growth and support others to embrace theirs. Take care.